March 1st, 2024. That's the date. And this is the Room Now podcast. Hi, I'm Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. Happy to be with you to discuss all matters rheumatology. But this week, a number of things I'm going to report um, are head scratchers to me. I don't know if these reports and associations are real or imaginary, luck or linked, casual or causal. You know, I'm going to talk about links to weather, biomarkers and infection, and you're going to have to decide for yourself. Um, Don't take my inflections on this to be the end-all, be-all. If you're interested in the subject, go look at the source. Let's begin with a report about um, no clear link between weather and musculoskeletal symptoms. Um, this is a, a fairly well-done study, but it's a, lot, it's a lot like a lot of other studies that have been done in the past. Um, this was uh, reported uh, in seminars in arthritis and rheumatism, uh, and basically the analysis that they did really showed no clear link between musculoskeletal symptoms and the weather. And, you know, this has been looked at many times in the past, you know, relationships to barometric pressure, humidity, temperature changes, latitude, longitude. It doesn't seem to matter yet. Patients will tell you they're way better at predicting the weather than is the weatherman. So who are you going to believe, the patients or the research? It's a little bit like diet, is it not? Lots and lots of studies showing really no effect of diet um, in spite of the many interventions, yet patients will swear that once they change their diet is when their arthritis finally got better. Interesting. An Australian study basically stated the obvious, but I think the obvious is worth stating again. This is a report where they looked at um, individuals who expressed a... Uh, limitation in ambulation. So self-reported difficulties with mobility. They they were patients who were limited to less than one kilometer were shown to have a higher risk of hip and spinal fractures, um, somewhere between 32% and 200% more. Uh, This is a study of over 239,000 adults over the age of 45. uh, And the more limited, the more the risk of fracture. Many of these were, but not all of them were, were related to fall. And why is this worth sort of obvious point? Why is it worth stating? I think it's something we really don't pay attention to, meaning we don't protect our patients from falls. We don't deal with the issues of strength. We certainly know that people who have bad arthritis and people who are in pain are going to have problems with, diffi- with, with ambulation. They're going to have problems with falls. They're going to, they may very well, because their arthritis, have a risk of fracture. But I think that the underlying story here to me and to you should be we are probably not paying enough attention to strength. So if I was going to have a banner in my clinic, um, as I wanted to do but never got around to do it, do it would be this is the year of getting strong. You know, be strong uh, and be well. And that means they, patients need to work out. They need to go to therapists. They need to get stronger. Because if they're not getting stronger, they're getting weaker. And if they're getting weaker, they're getting worse. 
Now, here's one of those head scratchers. The headline is, um, and this is from a journal that I don't subscribe to or pay any attention to. Uh, it's the American Society of Clinical Pharmacology and Therapeutics. It's a clinical and translational science report. The title is Machine Learning Identifies Fatigue in Fibromyalgia as Being Related to Metabolism of Tyrosine, Purine, Pyrimidines, and Glutamine. What? So this is a study that looked at metabolic signatures that might distinguish fibromyalgia patients from control. 54 fibromyalgia, 31 controls. And they used machine learning and they identified 13 metabolic markers that could accurately predict fibromyalgia with an accuracy of 79%. Um, They showed clear correlations between five uh, hydroxyindole acetic acid and glutamine levels with fatigue levels in FM patients. Is this a biologic correlate to the constitutional functional disorder, pain disorder that we call fibromyalgia? Is this casual or causal? I don't know what to think. It could be brilliant. And if it is, I'm taking credit for it. But if it's goofy, you'll forget it and won't blame me. An interesting review from a GI journal did a systematic review of patients with inflammatory bowel disease and showed that uh, the risk of extra intestinal manifestations, excuse me, extra intestinal manifestations, and I must say in this report that involved over 61 studies and 13,000 patients, that the manifestations were largely articular and musculoskeletal. 8% risk of new joint findings in IBD patients starting advanced therapies like vetalizumab, ustekinumab, JAK inhibitors, TNF inhibitors, etc. So they basically found no difference in new joint findings, new onset incident joint problems. If you were taking either vetalizumab or ustekinumab, the risk of joint problems was 9% versus 6%, not significant. They also looked at the risk of of joint symptoms getting better. And for the most part, there wasn't a lot of difference based on therapy, although drugs that you would typically say are good at arthritis, like JAK inhibitors and TNF inhibitors, were better than other drugs like um, uh, vetalizumab, the integrin inhibitor. So that gives you a range of what you might worry about in an IBD patient um, and whether what their risk of joint problems may be. If you were a pediatric rheumatologist, you probably would be familiar with the PAPA syndrome. This PAPA stands for pyogenic arthritis, pyoderma gangrenosum, uh, and acne. This is an auto-inflammatory syndrome due to an, uh, a, um, a dominant mutation of PSTPIP1. That's uh, proline serine threonine phosphatase inhibiting protein 1. Um, that's actually involved in uh, uh, CD2 T-cell activation and cellular adhesion. Uh, it is this mutation in PSTPIP1 that leads to these pyogenic uh, um, pustular neutrophil-laden uh, and joint disorders. 
But in this particular analysis that was reported in Annals of Rheumatic Disease, they found that um, this mutation was uh, mediated by gametoferon-mediated pyrin induction and IL-18, at least IL-18 being auto-inflammasome uh, uh, release, just like IL-1 release. Uh, and moreover, that this gametoferon-mediated uh, release of pyrin uh, or activation and IL-18 release could be treated and inhibited by JAK inhibitors. So that's, I think, a, they're taking the science of this auto-inflammatory disease to another level, and now it's relating to or having its um, benefits in the form of therapy. Uh, so inhibiting this gametoferon-dependent feedback loop is beneficial in such patients. This past week, the FDA approved yet another adalimumab biosimilar. This makes adalimumab uh, or Humira adalimumab number one, and now we have 10 other adalimumabs in the form of biosimilars. This new one is called adalimumab RYVK, also brand name Sinlandi. Uh, comes from uh, Teva and Alvatec. It's different from the other adalimumabs in that um, it's the first of the new version of Humira, meaning it's high concentration, meaning less volume, and citrate-free, and it also has an interchangeability um, component that other biosimilars don't always have. So it's getting busy out there in biosimilar land, is it not? Lupus, do you think it's going up or down? You know, I, I think it's, from what I've seen in my career, it's always been a steady run. Um, but an interesting study out of Norway was published in Arthritis and Rheumatology uh, this month, uh, where they reviewed like over 3,000 patients with lupus, and they identified chart review proven lupus cases. Uh, and of the 15 100 plus patients, they identified almost 800 of them with new onset lupus between 1999 and 2017. During this period, the incidence, the annual incidence rate of lupus fell. Um, and it was most pronounced in women uh, between the ages of 50 and 59, where the incidence fell during that period from three cases per 100,000 to one case per 100,000. Now, is this just Northern European white people? Um, would we be seeing the same rate where we really worry about lupus? And that would include, uh, you know, Hispanics, Asians, and African Americans, which are the more prevalent group. In this population, they also, in that same time frame, noted a 74% reduction in the use of um, postmenopausal hormone therapy. So a hyperestrogenic state um, might have been uh, inducing some of those cases. Um, it'll be interesting to see how, if other studies can compare. Uh, I personally don't believe that lupus uh, incidence and prevalence is going down where I practice in Dallas, Texas. Uh, an interesting association was reported this past week between um, tocilizumab and the risk of infection. In this particular study, they showed that eosinopenia, low eosinophil counts, was associated with a greater risk of infection. 
Single center study, 163 patients, mostly RA, given tocilizumab. 41 were hospitalized and half of those for serious um, infections. Um, SIE rates were more common when eosinophil counts were less than 0.05 grams per liter. Um, and when the, there was a low eosinophil to neutrophil ratio. Um, is this the way we're going to identify patients for infectious risk? Sounds like the math is too high or too hard to put to use. Uh, we're during ACR and during, I guess it was just during ACR, we, talk, we talked about a new monoclonal antibody that has the potential to lower rheumatoid factor and, and CCP antibodies. It's an uh, antibody against the neonatal FC receptor. But what you need to know about this is that it's, while it's being studied in RA and Sjogren's, um, in 2021, the FDA approved uh, a different uh, antibody against the FC, neonatal FC receptor, um, and the drug is called Vivergard, or indication is for myasthenia gravis. In 2023, the FDA approved another drug called Restigo, um, also for myasthenia gravis, and it too is a neonatal FC receptor monoclonal antibody. And now we have the drug uh, nipocalumab with promising results in RA, Sjogren's, hemolytic anemia, and also myasthenia gravis. This may be something worth watching. Again, the study reported ACR showed numerically better clinical responses by ACR 20, 50, 70, DAS, whatever, but they weren't significant and didn't meet its primary endpoint. It did significantly lower ACPA levels, but those studies were really pilot studies and underpowered as far as the number of people that were included. I think it's an interesting area of drug development you might want to be watching. There's a great Spanish RA registry called BioBadasser, um, and they did an analysis that looks a lot like the data we've seen coming out of the Mayo Clinic. And they looked at the incidence of multimorbidity and what its effects were on RA outcomes. So their study of 1,128 patients going on either a biologic or target synthetic, uh, and they found that about 10% met the definition of multimorbidity with a Charleston comorbidity index of three or greater. Multimorbid RA patients were older. They had more swollen joints. They had significantly higher DASH-28 scores. Um, and the, it didn't seem to affect their retention rate on drugs. But the point being that morbidity, comorbidity adds to severity, makes outcomes, optimal outcomes more difficult to achieve. Um, two more reports I think that were really eye-catching to me. One comes out of Toronto in the Journal of Rheumatology. Daphne Gladman's group um, uh, reported that um, psoriatic arthritis patients may not easily achieve the target goal of MDA, minimal disease activity. So this was a study of almost 1,600 adult PSA patients, and they had all kinds of measures. Um, and this was a, a multi-center study throughout Canada. 
And the patients included were those starting on new advanced therapies. And what do you think the percentage of those failing to achieve MDA at six months? You know, we think, I don't know. Well, I was surprised at these numbers. It's 65% in Ontario, 68% in Western Canada, 75% in Quebec, and 75% in the Atlantic and Eastern region. Meaning 25 to 35% of patients are not achieving MDA. Now, are we not giving them enough time? Are we not treating them aggressively? Do we, re- do we need to rethink our goals and our initial treatment choices in PSA? I think that this is food for thought. Another eye-catching, headline-grabbing news piece uh, appeared this week where sinusitis is linked to a 40% increased risk of rheumatic disease. Really, the sniffles, a snotty nose, sneezing. What? Well, this study comes out of the Mayo Clinic. 1,700 plus patients followed for greater than five years. There was this 40% risk. And what kind of rheumatic disease are we talking about here? Were they all Wegener's? No, they were not. The greatest risk was for antiphospholipid syndrome, a seven-fold higher risk. Sjogren's syndrome, 2.5-fold higher risk. Vasculitis, a 40% increased risk. Same for PMR, a 40% increased risk. And a 80% increased risk for seronegative RA. I don't get this. I don't even know if this really means anything. Everybody gets sinusitis or, you know, Every two-thirds of patients with, fibro, with fibromyalgia have sinusitis. One-third of RA patients in my clinic report sinusitis. But what they reported was that this increased the risk. If you had repeated episodes, your risk was increased. Acute sinusitis was associated with the risk of seronegative RA. I might buy the idea that sinusitis could increase the risk of RA as that would go along with the mucosal hypothesis behind RA, that upper respiratory infection and or endothelial activation leads to ACPA generation and microbiome changes do the same. And may, but that's with seropositive RA. They found an association with seronegative RA. Again, a head scratcher. Is it real? Is it imaginary? Does it mean something to you? Or am I wasting your time? Let's end with an Ask Kush Anything, a question I received two weeks ago from Dr. Nicole Melendez in Tampa. She asked the question, I have several young RA and PSA patients asking if there's any risk when they have a child that the child will have health problems related to their RA. And there, there's some concern about autism. And in general, you know, we do know that there are some risks to uh, adverse pregnancy outcomes in mothers with RA, higher rates of, of, of um, premature birth, higher rates of, uh, of miscarriage, spontaneous abortions. Not clear that higher rates of fetal malformations, right? But, you know, this is part of the reasons why we strongly recommend your RA patients be totally controlled in great shape. You don't want to go into the making a baby in an inflammatory milieu, right? The question of autism is even more complex. 
You know, the risk of autism and autism spectrum disorders is somewhere between 1.5 and 3% in the general population. RA patients do the same. I found a report, I actually reported this uh, earlier this year. It's from Psychologic Medicine that says that in maternal RA, there is no increased risk of autism in the offspring unless the mother has RA before she becomes pregnant. So this is a study of 3,600 RA mothers compared to 1.5 million other mothers without RA. The risk of autism was the same in both um, and, and not any different, 1.9% in both groups. That, as I said, is equal to what the population number is. But they did find that if the mother had RA before delivery, um, the autism spectrum disorder risk was significantly higher at 1.43 hazard ratio and especially higher for seronegative RA, 1.61. Those numbers were significant. But are they meaningful? Let's talk about meaningful numbers here. Again, 3,629 mothers um, with RA who are pregnant. They gave birth to um, 20, I'm sorry, 78 or 70 um, with autism. And again, the rate there is 1.9%. I think that this, these numbers aren't worth scaring your patients about. Now, if the patient is uniquely tuned in to the whole autism risk because it's a family risk, well, that will carry an increased risk by itself. Will it not? This is somewhat heritable. So I think these are muddy waters. I think the risk is really low. I don't have these conversations with my patients. I tell my patients, young patients with RA and PSA who want to get pregnant, let's be in remission and then let's get pregnant. And that's how you make a baby. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Go to the website to check out these citations and more. We'll see you next week on the podcast. Take care.